Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. We're featuring remarks made by former state representative Jeannie Ives at the Foundations of Faith and Family Conference hosted by the Spirit of Liberty Church of God in Markham, Illinois. In addition to her service in the legislature, Ms. Ives is a West Point graduate, U.S. Army veteran, a mother of five children, and the co-founder of Breakthrough Ideas, a policy, advocacy, and education network. During the conference, she spoke about public policies that impact families. You can't talk about the top five policies that support families until you talk about where we are in terms of what's going on in the world, definitely in the state of Illinois. The reason that I'm involved in public policy is because if you look around at anything that's going on, you know that this all comes from people that are in leadership over us. Unfortunately, people that this nation and this state has elected to be in leadership and in control over you. And so I say that because there's a lot of Christians who would like to just kind of sit out the politics, maybe not get involved in elections. I'll let God take care of that. Well, (laughs) guess what? This country was founded on the belief that it is we, the people, that determine what happens to us. This was founded by a number of people that believed in a higher being. They infused it throughout the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. This is founded on the belief that there is a God who we need to be accountable to. And so Christians can't sit it out. We're not not here to sit out public policy debates. Sorry, you don't get that luxury anymore. To paraphrase Thomas Jefferson, if you're not knowledgeable then you're not going to make the right decisions. I mean, he essentially said that. You can trust your democracy, but only to an informed citizenry. And so that's why we've kind of taken on this mission in my company called Breakthrough Ideas. This is what we do. We try to connect the dots on public policy. We do it in a different way. There's a lot of folks out there who do policy research, put out policy papers and all that, but we do it in a little bit of a different way. We do it in a very opinionated way. So we are a 501c4, which means we can work on both the political and the policy area. We can work in organizing and helping the grassroots. We can help candidates that run for office. And that's where the rubber meets the road, quite frankly, because you can put out all the policy positions that you want, but unless you're engaged in the public debate and you engage others in that, you're gonna get nowhere, unless you support the candidates as well. I firmly believe, as religious folks, and I, Christian or whatever, as somebody who believes that there's fundamental truths, that if you fail to get involved in public policy, you just leave it to somebody else. And, you know, people are like, eh, the news is depressing. I don't want to listen to the news. I, I'd rather put on Comedy Central. I'd rather go watch the next Netflix series that is entertaining. I'm sorry. As an American... You should not have that luxury to not be an informed citizen. Now, you can. You can. I mean, let's face it. It's a free country. You don't have to pay attention. But your failure to not pay attention to politics means that you will be subsumed by it, and you will be led by people that really are more interested in power and control than they are in public policy solutions that are best for everybody. 
We're at a crisis point in our country, and I think all of you know it. I'm just looking at a few things in the way that the family is under attack before we kind of look at some real solutions to all of this, because we do have great foundational principles that can lead us out of this wilderness. Think about this. Here's situation number one. Think about technology. Think about the physical separation of child development from human interaction. So I bring this up because reports came out, and this article I particularly uh, am going to quote from is called Interesting Engineering. So scientists in China created an AI robot system that cares for human embryos growing in artificial wombs. When we think of AI-monitored humans in artificial wombs, we think of the dystopian sci-fi future presented in The Matrix. However, the researchers behind the very real project believe their new system will be a force for good that will help to boost China's population. The country is currently dealing with its lowest birth rate in six decades. The team from Suzhou Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Technology in China's eastern Jiangsu province designed the robot to constantly monitor and care for human embryos by adjusting the nutrition, carbon dioxide, and other important factors in the artificial embryos. They claim the new robot-assisted artificial womb is a safer, more efficient method for growing embryos than a natural womb, though no human trials have been conducted so far. But think about that. Is, seriously, is that where we're headed? Not just artificial insemination anymore or surrogacy pregnancies, but literally harvesting sperm and eggs and growing babies entirely in a mechanical womb. Can you imagine such a future? This is the attack on the family. This is a government, and, and by the way, China is no friend of the family. We all know that. And they're no friend to Illinois either. Yet Governor Pritzker, if you haven't read the recent information, just handed him a half a billion dollars in tax credits to seriously uh, just compete against American manufacturers of battery technology. And uh, by the way, that company is linked to the Chinese Communist Party, so he's funding our enemies. So as my son trains to in F-18s, Pritzker is funding the very CCP that is creating the next generation of aircraft carriers to defeat him in battle if necessary. This is horrible technology, right? This is a, an affront to what a family is, and yet, I mean, maybe they think it's too far off in the future, but we've seen what they are capable of doing, and this, I think, is a serious thing that we should be discussing. Okay, situation two, parental rights are under attack. Official Illinois state guidance is to let school districts hide from parents the transition of children at school. Across the nation, we've seen how this has played out in California. Governor Newsom signed into law a piece of legislation that will designate the state as a sanctuary for children and teens seeking medicalized gender transitions. And in California, though, there's a little bit of pushback. Jessica Conan has an 11-year-old daughter in the California's Spreckles Union School District. She sued the school district for socially transitioning her daughter into a boy without her knowledge or consent and won a $100,000 judgment against the school. I know. But this situation goes hand-in-hand hand with other parental rights issues, right? Like notification of abortion, the exposure of sexual content in schools, the proliferation of multi-gender bathrooms, and much, much more. This is the battlefront right now. This is the argument. This is the place where families need to be concerned because this is real. This isn't some sort of sci-fi mechanical womb. This is right in front of us right now. And it's a, that's where we are in the United States, literally trying to stand up for truth 
and being shot down by politicians who don't have the courage to speak it. Situation three, families face economic threats. Inflation is cutting into household budgets. Housing interest rates are hurting new home buyers. Credit card debt is increasing. For example, in the April to June quarter, prices were up 15.8% since early 2021, while wages had only risen 12.8%, according to the bankrupt rate study of CPI and other wage measure called the Employment Cost Index. That 3% gap is less worrisome than the 3.7% divide in the summer and early fall of last year, but it's still significant. At the current pace, workers won't recover their lost purchasing power until the end of 2024. The bank rate study shows that came out of a USA Today article. Well, we know how impactful declining income can be as a stressor on American families. We know what that does. It creates tension in the home and then tension among the children. Mortgage rates are now the highest they've ever been since 2002, 22-year high. They average 7.12% for 30-year fixed-rate loans, effectively putting a freeze on the housing market. Buyers can't afford to buy, and sellers don't want to move up or down into new homes and give up their ultra-low mortgage rates. That's from Realtor.com. Then, Americans' credit card debt levels have just notched a new but undesirable milestone for the first time ever They've surpassed $1 trillion, according to data released by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. During the second quarter, credit card balances shot up by $45 billion, or nearly 4.6%, to land at $1.03 trillion. Matt Schultz, chief credit analyst for Lending Trees, said in an interview with CNN, what's driving it is inflation, higher interest rates, and just generally how expensive life is in 2023. These are huge threats to the family. This creates problems, doesn't solve problems. So economic threats, though, manifest itself in other areas. And I felt like this story that just came out from The Atlantic, and The Atlantic is a left-leaning journalistic endeavor, okay? But they talk specifically about marriage rates and single parenthood. And single parenthood is on the rise, and marriage rates are declining. In fact, in 2021, the U.S. marriage rate was 14.9 marriages in the last year per 1,000 women. That is down from 16.3 a decade earlier. And in 2021, though, this is good news, divorce rate dropped from 6.9 in the last year from 9.7 per 1,000 in 2011. So divorce is down, but marriage is also down. Okay? And so this Atlantic article talks about the privilege of having a two-parent family. That's what it's called. Is single parenthood the problem? The article focused on research done by Melissa Kearney. In the article, they state, the high incidence of single motherhood has spread to what we might think of as the middle class. It has undermined the economic security of a much wider swath of the population. Kearney, an economist with the, at the University of Maryland, has amassed reams of evidence on the rise of single parenthood and the way it has put lower-income children at an even greater disadvantage to their high-income peers over the past four decades. Her book shows that marriage itself matters. It is not just a correlate of other factors, such as wealth and education. So far, many readers on the left have concurred that this is a problem they should have been paying more attention to, while those on the right have had a simpler response. Duh. Happy to welcome Miss Melissa Kearney to the club of folks who understand more kids would be better off if we had more two-parent married families 
equip the American Enterprise Institute's Naomi Riley, one of many scholars from the prominent conservative think tank who have lauded the book. So this, I think, is really important. The, the article went on to say this, and I think I, I want to read this because I think it also says a lot about what's going on in, to families right now. Women are going it alone, not because they want to, but because they feel they have no choice. In straight couplings, women tend to like to date men who earn more than them, and men tend to like to date women who earn less. Thus, women's thriving and men's flailing have left a marriageability gap. In surveys, women overwhelmingly say that they want to get married. That includes young people. Just 8% of Gen Z's described marriage as outdated. But they report struggling to find someone with a steady job, someone to match their sensibility and ambition so they have kids on their own. So here's what we see, right? We see this rise in single parenthood just because, well, I want a child. I haven't found the right man. I'm just going to go artificially get it done. Right? We have these attacks on the family from an economic standpoint. We have declining marriage rates. We've got parental right issues everywhere that we look. So from that standpoint, I mean, the family, it almost seems impossible to be able to keep this together. I mean, are we seriously going to go to a society where kids have become a commodity? That's what it looks like when you come to the Chinese solution. That's what it looks like when you come to a lot of these other solutions, too. But for us in this room, and for many families throughout the United States, the truth is, is that our families will be strong. Our families, for the most part, will be intact. And that much of what we've just discussed is 100% controllable by who we are and what we imbue in our own children. It does not have to be this way, and it certainly won't be for us. And if there is a two-parent advantage then we have a lot to be thankful for because if we maintain that two-parent advantage for our children, they will hopefully rise to be the leaders of the future and set some of this aside. So many decisions affect families, and it doesn't require any input from the government. That's the good news. So we can decide to marry. We can decide to have children. We can decide what type of debt to take on. We can decide how to raise our children. In general, we have a lot of freedom to make those decisions still in this state. But we do need to be very cognizant of the broader public policy impacts every family at every individual level faces. So individually, we can control our families from a broader spectrum. We do have to be very concerned about what the government's doing. Former State Representative Jeannie Eyes during the Foundations of Faith and Family Conference hosted by the Spirit of Liberty Church of God in Markham, Illinois. More of her remarks from that conference after this. With a woman to look at culture from a Christian worldview, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. Tuesday, Ohio became the most recent conservative state to defend a so-called right to abortion. A year and a half ago, pro-lifers celebrated the legal significance of overturning Roe v. Wade, but since then, voters in state after state have protected the right to end innocent preborn lives. This is a you are here moment for us. Many people, even if personally opposed to abortion, are not willing to restrict anyone's freedom. This is part of the legacy of Roe. Americans learned an absolute allegiance to autonomy, along with what Joe Rigney called the cruelty of untethered empathy. Andrew Walker tweeted this, quote, we want a generational legal argument in overturning Roe, but the teaching effect of a 50-year law to etch a lie about what human life is and when it begins has wreaked tragic and generational consequences to reverse. 
end quote. Political strategies are important, timing, wording on ballot initiatives, etc. But most of the work to defend life continues to be upstream from the ballot box. I'm John Stone Street. Joining Illinois Family Spotlight, we're featuring remarks made by former State Representative Jeannie Ives during the Foundations of Faith and Family Conference hosted by the Spirit of Liberty Church of God in Markham, Illinois. During this segment, you'll hear her comments on mediating structures to big government and the danger of self-silencing. So what do we have going for us? What are some of the policies that we have going for us? As Americans, first of all, we have First Amendment rights. And the first of all the First Amendment rights is freedom of religion. So we can always count on that, I think, really to be upheld, especially with Trump's picks of those three conservative Supreme Court justices that are fairly young. And so I think that bodes well for us in the future. Freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of press, freedom to petition the government. These strong constitutional rights that we have will ensure in the future, if we use them, if we're not afraid to petition our government and speak up at city council members at meetings, if we're not afraid to write things openly and get, have them published, if we're not afraid to stick together in free association like in meetings like this, if we're unafraid to stand up for our beliefs, and speak proudly about them, then we should be fine. It's when we decide to self-silence ourselves, which you do see many folks doing in their own positions at work or in their neighborhoods, then we will have a problem. So it's gonna take a bit of courage from those who are in places like this to set the example and speak up. So that's one thing we have going for us. Number two, I would say we have school choice. I mean, school choice is proliferating right now in other states. And unfortunately, in Illinois, it looks like they want to shut it down. But we're going to be led to change that direction, in my opinion, when other states uh, start to thrive under that situation and enough people wake up. So we're fortunate that we have 50 sort of experiments going on in the other states when it comes to public policy that we can point to. That is a big deal for us. The school choice movement is not dead. And even in liberal Illinois, we have liberal, in the traditional sense of the word, homeschooling laws. I think we're number two in terms of like a hands-off approach across the states when it comes to homeschooling. Very light touch. That is a, a really good benefit for us. The other thing that we do have is we have a, an inordinate amount of educational supports for children with special needs. So from a, from a public policy perspective, that is also a win-win. Now, they fall down in that regard when children matriculate out of the education system, and we need to work on that. We're not very good at funding the disability folks. I'm not saying that, but I will say that we do have laws in place to educationally support those with special needs, which is a win for us. Number three, and I think this is important, is we have what Peter Berger and Richard John Newhouse referred to as mediating structures. These are structures that empower people and this is something that goes way back to Alexis de Tocqueville, who famously praised Americans for their prodigious art of association, their remarkable capacity to form voluntary associations between the state and the individual. 
So Newhouse and Berger wrote in um, a policy piece, they said, the contradiction between wanting more government services and less government may be only apparent. More precisely, we suggest that the modern welfare state is here to stay. Indeed, that it ought to expand the benefits it provides, but that alter uh, native mechanisms, alternative mechanisms are possible to provide welfare state services. So that matters because when we talk about the state providing all the services, and they, we do, we have, a, we have a modern welfare state that provides a lot of benefits to families that are struggling. We also have a whole lot of mediating structures, public policy places, uh, nonprofits that help to meet out some of those or to meet the needs of some of those folks when it comes to the welfare state. That is not necessarily a negative. It is better that we have mediating structures to help in that regard than it is to not have them present at all and simply be a number on a government role and uh, services provided that way. Mediating structures, though, just to make this a little, go down into this a little bit different. They're defined as institutions standing between the individual in his private life and the large institutions of public life. Modernization brings about a historically unprecedented dichotomy between public and private life. The most important large institution in the ordering of modern society is the modern state. In addition, there are large economic conglomerates of capitalist enterprise, big labor, and the growing bureaucracies that administer wide sectors of society, such as education and organized professions. All these institutions are called megastructures. Mediating structures provide the bridge between the impersonal big state institutions and the very private and individual life that cannot always cope alone. So those would be like neighborhoods, family, church, and other voluntary associations. So this is a precept that has been part of our founding. This is a precept that is embedded in our First Amendment right of free association. But this is something that has actually been beneficial even from a tax perspective. This is why we have 501c3s. This is why we have 501c4s. Because these mediating structures help provide a, a conduit on public policy and support from megastructures really large government-run organizations, and the very, very private individual that may not be able to cope by themselves. So when you talk about, well, we want to run a program called Exit the Public Schools, like IFI does, well, they act as a mediating structure between teaching the private individual how to exit the public school and the megastructure of the educational institutions that don't want you to. This is something that we need to avail of ourselves of. Think about the Thomas More Society. But for them, would we have a David Delayden being defended or a Mark Hauk being defended and able to live out his values? Alliance Defending Freedom, my own organization, Breakthrough Ideas. There are a myriad of mediating structures that fall under these voluntary associations. Your Knights of Columbus. We have this little nonprofit called Doodlebug in Wheaton. They provide services for the developmentally disabled. This is something unique and something that is a powerful tool for us to use in asserting ourselves into public policy. And I think that that's actually pretty unique to America, one of the top five policies. So I've already covered three of those things that I thought were important. First Amendment rights, our school choice policies, our these mediating structures. The other thing we have going for us is that we are still for the most part, a capitalism, private property rights organization. 
that gets further and further away as we do deals with you know, the Chinese Communist Party. It gets further away as they extract more and more of your tax money, which is really your private property. It gets further and further away as we have a consolidation of mega corporations like Amazon that take away from um, smaller businesses. It can slip away. But this is one of those things that at least is still fundamentally considered part of the American core. The other thing that we have going for us, and I think this is really a policy that is maybe not discussed as much as it should be, and that is we have the power of mobility. So, you know, while you may feel like you're stuck in Illinois, and maybe that's because it's a job situation, a family situation, the truth is that you're never more mobile than you are in America. You can move to where you want to go. You can move to the policies that align with your beliefs. You want to go to South Dakota? Go to South Dakota. You want to go to Florida? No income tax there? Go to Florida. You want to go across the border to Indiana like many people did because the COVID restrictions here were ridiculous and they have a 1% property tax cap? Guess what? You can move. Nobody's locked you in place here. And especially in these times where workers are in need almost everywhere and in almost every industry, Mobility is a huge plus for us. It's also one of those defining moments where you're going to see from a political point of view, you're going to see people that have aligned themselves with by moving to states where they feel more respected. In the state of Illinois, I can't say that most of us in this room feel that anybody respects our efforts, our tax dollars. You know, th th this is why the big fight over the EV vehicles versus gas-powered vehicles, honestly, when they broke out the car, that gave a lot of Americans the ability to move about like they had never seen before. And the idea that you're going to in any way limit our ability <laughs> to move about the United States, that's a deal killer. I think that just on that standpoint, we have such a long history of wanting to have the freedom to move. And it begins, you know, quite frankly, with our founding. People moved to this country to be able to live in a free state. Those people moved for new beginnings, and uh, people still these days move for new beginnings. So to our advantage, we do have really important public policies that support families in that endeavor that allow you to move to your family away from a state that would transition your child behind your back, God forbid, or that would force your child to use a multi-gender bathroom. If you want the opportunity, go across the border to Iowa. You can now get an over $7,000 tax credit just to send your kid to whatever school you want, regardless of income level. The, the ability to move, the ability to have 50 laboratories of democracy policy, the best ideas can come to the forefront, is really actually also pro-family. Thank you for having me this morning. Former State Representative Jeannie Eyes, during the Foundations of Faith and Family Conference, hosted by the Spirit of Liberty Church of God in Markham, Illinois. Please support the work of the Illinois Family Institute. To give, click Donate on the IllinoisFamily.org homepage or call IFI at 708-781-9328. All donations are tax-deductible and very much appreciated. Also, go to IllinoisFamily.org to sign on for IFI email updates. Keep IFI in your prayers and tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight. Until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.